Hi, my name is Jijun, and I'll read from Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the tem- temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. remove this that's okay um well actually i'm not even gonna be back there hold on um hey everybody how are we while i awkwardly move this we doing okay silence that's good i'd expect no less so thanks for coming uh my name is sid druin i'm the campus minister for ruf reform university fellowship uh, it's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and you all, whoever and however you are. And really, I say this every week, but we mean it. We don't want to be a place for one kind of student. We want to be a place for every kind of student. And that means no matter what your personal background is, that means no matter what your social scene on campus is, we're really glad you're here. And so we hope you feel welcomed and we hope you feel um, glad to be here. And so also we mean that even in terms of where you are with faith. So if you're not sure we are with Christianity, um, or you maybe feel like you have more doubts than faith, or maybe you feel very strong in your faith, we're glad you're here too. And we just really do hope that um, you feel like there's a spot for you here too. I especially want to just thank people who this is the first time they've ever been here. Um, That's awesome. Thanks for coming. Um, I know you're in week three of the semester. The syllabus day feels far away at this point. cold and flu season is among us so appreciate the effort here um and by the way if i sound a little bit weird i sound weird to myself my whole like left side feels stopped up so uh <laughs> i just anyway i feel like i'm like at a half of an echo chamber anyway um so anyway if i don't know you uh don't let that fool you i'd love to meet you and uh eric and maddie can you raise your hand they're their interns they'd love to meet you too and then there's a bunch of students who also say hello um and also, I just can't get over the awesome centerpiece in the back of that table. So that's awesome, too. <laughs> it's really touching. It's all very January. Okay. So this semester in large group, uh, we're looking at the book of Isaiah and the Bible and the theme or topic of who God is. Last week, I gave you my case, and it was rather long, of why we should look at, uh, why I should take the time and the energy to look at the book of Isaiah and this topic of who is God. As a reminder, and again, it's going to be very brief, uh, studying Isaiah is worth the time and energy for two reasons. 
first, Isaiah pictures God like no other. He pictures God in a kind of level of detail and emotion that you won't find anywhere else. And reading Isaiah together will lead us to ask ourselves this really healthy question. Are you sure you really know who God is? You sure you really know who God is? Second, Isaiah pictures God's character and his characteristic in such a way that are so important because we need to know who God is. We need to know what his character and his characteristics are when our lives get extreme. You know, that, those kind of, and also the kind of unpredictability of that extremity and even the boredom that feels like the most unextreme you can imagine. And so look, as our lives explode with unexplainable happiness, life-altering suffering, and obvious lack thereof of both of those extremes, uh, when we don't know what tomorrow holds, it's important to know who holds tomorrow, okay? In the words of 19th century theologian Charles Spurgeon, when we cannot trace the hand of God, we can trust his heart. When you can't trace the hand of God, what he's up to, you can trust his heart. And really, that's actually the, the basis for my title this semester. And the title for the semester large group, not of this particular large sermon, is Tracing the Heart of God. Who is God according to Isaiah? So we're going to trace the heart of God together. And we're going to meditate on who God is. And this is, as I said last week, a kind of spiritual rehab. It's for me. And I'm inviting you into my personal journey here. Uh, of helping to change where my mind feeds itself. I would personally want to begin with knowing the God who controls everything and spend a lot less time plotting how to manipulate my circumstances, past, present, and future. So that's my goal, and that's the goal of this series. So we're going to continue kind of the exercise of tracing God's heart and his character and characteristics from this passage of Isaiah 6, which might be familiar to some of you. But before I say more on that, I'm going to pray. Would you pray with me and for me? Father, um, I do feel like I can't hear out of half my head. Um, and I feel like, um, I don't know, just inadequate to the task of, of talking about how great you are. And um, there's part of us that really struggles to believe that. And there's a part of us that wants to believe that. And I pray that the, the desire would win out over the cynicism tonight that you'd help uh, lead us to that water, we're thirsty. We're thirsty in ways we don't even understand. We're thirsty in ways that we don't know. And I pray that you would help the hunger and the thirst inside of us, the desire for fulfillment um, to meet you. Slake our thirst, Jesus. Wherever we are with you, I pray that you'd move to meet us. We can't move enough to meet you. And I pray that that's, that's my, my prayer for this time, that you'd be high and lifted up, Jesus, that you'd be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, no matter where our hearts feel they are. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Look, I'm just going to get this out in the open. I'm by no means an art critic. I'm no means like a literary film, television art critic, okay? But I've noticed something over the last couple decades that we have this kind of trend in the stories that we tell ourselves recently. And the stories that we tell ourselves recently, um, or maybe just the ones that I'm attuned to because I like them, kind of have a sort of trajectory they share. Most of them begin with a low-grade feeling of anxiety and guilt and boredom. I'm going to give an an example that you might not know of, but it's like kind of one of the first indie films 
that kind of made it, well, not really big because it's indie, but it made it. Um, and it's called Being John Malkovich, which is a real niche film. Uh, some of you have seen it. There, John Cusack plays Craig Schwartz. He's a vocationally frustrated puppeteer. Maybe that's why it's not big. Uh, who's unhappily married to a pet-obsessed wife, played by Carmen Diaz. But who, Pat, this guy, Craig Schwartz, passionately and anxiously and definitely guiltily falls in love with a co-worker at his painfully boring job as a file clerk. Uh, in fact, it's kind of a, an odd m movie. Schwartz works on the seventh and a half foot or seven half, seven half floor of a skyscraper in New York. And the opening shots of the, of the film are of him carrying manila envelopes stacked with filing papers to miniature file cabinets. And he's kind of like stooped over and it's sort of you know half a ceiling height and his neck and his shoulders and his head are all kind of scraping a very low ceiling as he works. And there's a part of me in all of us that resonates with that kind of like beginning scene of the low ceiling feeling that we all kind of feel in our lives sometimes. According to Charles Taylor, who's a philosopher, for most of us who live in the 21st century, our everyday lives feel sealed off from a God because we live in what's called an eminent frame. An eminent frame is Charles Taylor's way of talking about a socially conditioned, often unconscious mental frame or ceiling. It boxes out this idea of awe and transcendence in the supernatural in our life, and it boxes in the ordinary and the imminent and the natural order that we can observe, that we can taste and touch and feel and see. So whether you're tracking with that philosophical digression or not, that's okay. Um, we can all feel like Schwartz in our lives, even here at Davidson, clutching at um, boring filing papers, hunching over from class to class in a low ceiling kind of mundane existence, anxiously and guiltily in love with another life. Maybe it's a future self or maybe it's a present tense someone else, but that's where our heart is. But like, look, what I like about the good stories that we're telling ourselves these days is they don't end there, typically. Some of them are pretty depressing and do end there. But a lot of them actually keep moving forward. They don't leave us feeling trapped and desperate. And so they introduce a supernatural element. A supernatural element like magic or science fiction or fantasy or some sort of thing that is outside of our expectation. For instance, in Being John Malkovich, Craig Schwartz discovers a small door hidden behind a filing cabinet, and he crawls down a tunnel and magically enters the brain of John Malkovich, the actor, <laughs> where he can actually puppeteer Malkovich for 15 minutes at a time before he's ejected into a New Jersey uh, sewer line. Okay, this is actually in the movie. Or in a recent movie, uh, the movie Arrival, based on uh, Ten Chong's Story of Your Life short story, the main character, Louisa Banks, as this linguistics professor at the top of her field, she was in a beautiful home, but she's pictured at the beginning of the movie kind of restlessly longing and alone until she finds her purpose in being hired to do the linguistics work, to, to translate or interpret this alien species language. They're advanced, they're called heptapods, I think. And she begins to understand the alien's language, especially their written language, and all of a sudden, have you guys seen this movie? Most of you. I, I figured it would be a little more popular being, being John Balgovich, but it's okay. 
Um, anyway, she starts to understand their language, starts to realize it's not written sequentially, cause and effect, and it changes the way that she understands time and space, and perhaps most importantly, her own relationships. And she starts to become unstuck from time, to see all of time at once, which leads her to choose the extreme joy and extreme sadness or pain of marrying and having a child. And I won't ruin the rest of the movie for you. Okay? So that's, that's that, okay? So look, I, some of you are like, oh man, science fiction, magical realism. Ugh, give me a break. So whether you're not into those, you can relate to what these stories are getting at, I think. And what these stories are getting at is that feeling of low-grade, back-of-the-heart anxiety and inadequacy and boredom that sometimes, somehow gets interrupted. And this almost magical, awe-inspiring interruption or disruption suddenly changes how we think and how we feel and how we act, right? I love the way that writer Frederick Buechner describes that kind of wonderstruck moment and what it does to us. He says it makes us jump not so much out of our skin as jump into our skin. I like that way of putting it. And this is really what the prophet Isaiah experiences in chapter 6 in these verses in our passage tonight. Isaiah has this like background anxiety and guilt and boredom, and they're suddenly burst to the forefront. And like Louisa Banks, he encounters a being who he can't explain, who simultaneously terrifies him and intrigues him, whose very presence and words transform Isaiah and us forever. But unlike, of course, the arrival aliens, the Lord God is not science fiction, Although sometimes maybe he feels like to some of us, and he is as high above such a thing or such a being as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates an archangel from a caterpillar is finite, but the gulf that separates God from an archangel, even, is infinite. That's a quote from A.W. Tozer, and he's trying just to get at this idea that God is holy. He's holier and he's bigger than the gap between even an advanced alien species and human beings. Again, science fiction. But in the real world, it's even bigger than that. It's an infinite gap. And really, this is just all to say, all to introduce. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 are saying, they're telling us that a real encounter, an encounter with a real and holy God, transforms our anxiety into worship, our guilt into freedom, and our boredom into mission. So when we encounter God, as he really is, in his holiness that transforms us and internally, inside out. We go from anxious to worshipful, guilty to free, and we go from bored to purposeful. And that's really like the sentence summary that provides the outline on your handout. And you can see the verses and the, and the points there. We're going to look first at how God's kingly holiness transforms our worries into worship. We'll see how God, as a king, calms us. He calms our fears in verses 1 through 4. Second, we're going to look at the God's priestly holiness, how it transforms our guilt into freedom. Okay, we'll see how God, as the priest, frees us in verses 5 through 7. And third, we're going to look at how God's prophetic holiness transforms our boredom into mission. We'll see how God, as a prophet, sends us out in verse 8. So that's where we're going, that's where, that's where we're headed. And we're going to begin as we begin, every time, very beginning. We're going to work our way through the passage, 
And we're going to focus on verses 1 through 4 at first and how God as a holy king can actually move our thoughts from anxiety to rest-filled praise. So we're going to look there, if you would, at verses 1 through 4. And I just have you pause for a second on just the very beginning of verse 1. The very beginning of verse 1, if we knew the historical moment, which I'll explain in a minute, it would be very clear that Isaiah and many others of his time period have a great amount of background stress. All we have to know and all we have to read at this point is in the year that King Uzziah died. You see, King Uzziah's death marked the end of a 52-year consecutive stretch of financial prosperity and geopolitical stability for the southern kingdom of Judah, which is in the modern Israel in the southern part. Okay? And that's where Isaiah lives. But in the year roughly about this time, 740, when Uzziah died, there was another king that there were rumors about, Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria. Don't ask me to say that again. <laughs> he was beginning the expansion to the west, okay? And he had empire in his mind. He was not just going to, to pillage. He was not just going to take crops and wealth for himself. He and the Assyrians were going to empire build. And that meant for them there was the very real threat of being burned alive for Judah, that limbs would be chopped off, that people would be impaled alive on sharpened stakes like bugs. And that was, and if you were lucky, you were forcefully dragged to a foreign land with chains and a fish hook through your cheek. That's the Assyrian way of doing business. And that was actually for those people who surrendered. That's for prisoners, for men, women, and children, according to their own royal annals. So Isaiah, like many others, is a little bit scared. <laughs> okay? And they're all a little bit scared, especially because their good luck charm, King Uzziah, has died. Look, maybe he didn't have the best diplomacy. Maybe he wasn't the mightiest military man. But man, he had good fortune for 52 straight years. That is the hot hand of royalty in ancient Near East. So he's really, that's really scary for Isaiah and the people around him. And if we're honest, in this day and age, we have a kind of deep-seated fear, maybe even an anxiety. We live in a dangerous world. You know, I don't have to sort of compare and contrast the national and international headlines, right? I don't have to do that with sort of Assyria. We all know that the world and the country is filled with dangers. I mean, that's what makes the news a prophet at this point. It's just to get into, is showing you how many terrible things are there. I mean, your generation, Generation Y, the millennials, maybe that's just the top upperclassmen, especially Z, the iGens. Uh, you know, psychologists define the generations, those two generations in particular, by growing up in light of real fears. I don't know if you knew this. That's how they, that's how they assess the different generations. I mean, think about it. There's not been a day that any of you in this room have been born when 9-11 didn't happen. Terrorism on our shores. None of you have been alive, or maybe you were alive for a couple of years before that happened. Okay, the Great Recession is a huge part of your family's story. <clears throat> ISIS, hurricanes, tsunamis, rogue nuclear missiles for more and more nations. And perhaps this is why our politics is increasingly so passionate and divided, especially around the U.S. presidency. Every four years, we're looking for someone who can hold these bad forces back, someone who can usher in a 52-year streak of prosperity and security. Four years at a time. 
But when the real king... <laughs> but the, when the real king, the real president of the universe, kind of steps into the scene in this passage, two things are immediately clear, crystal clear. Okay? The other kings and politicians can't guarantee what we want and need. That's the first thing. The second thing is our, we worry because deep down we know another human being can't guarantee what we need and want. Verses 1 through 4 show us about false majesty, the false majesty behind our worries by revealing what true majesty actually looks like. Sometimes we even forget what true majesty is. We live in so much false majesty. Just look with me blow by blow here in this passage. God is enthroned as the king, high and lifted up. In fact, his throne is so elevated that it extends from heaven to earth where all the magnitude of the Old Testament temple system compound merely serves as a footrest for God. All that giant infrastructure is where he dangles his feet, not where he dwells. The train or hem of the ancient Near Eastern king, the robe of of that robe, hem, right, was a way to identify the rank and the importance of a ruler. But what was that usually richly embroidered hem with three to four inch tassels for God that thing was so big that hem of a robe was so big and so extravagant it filled the entire temple in Isaiah's vision just get a picture of this for a second and so God is mighty and he's huge and he's in power and he's important so much so that when God enters a human space there is an automatic cosmic fog machine that just goes off okay So we don't go blind from seeing him in his holiness. That's why the fog machine exists. Okay? And then near, when he shows up on the scene, there's near stone-on-stone destruction. Doorposts, thresholds are shaking, rumbling. Right? And and that's when he uses his indoor voice. According to verse 4. But how should we respond to his true majesty? Right? How do we, how does God wish to be known? Verses 2 and 3 suggest that the seraphim, seraphim, by the way, are only mentioned here, and they literally mean burning ones. Burning ones. So they're our guide, is what we're suggested by verses 2 and 3. Follow them. Sinless, supernatural beings cover their faces and their feet in the presence of God. And they sing out what what the Bible, by sheer repetition, by the way, the Bible uses the word holy 700 times. In the noun form, 300 in the verb form. That's a thousand times uses the word holiness. Okay? That's the most important attribute that these seraphim are singing. Holy. And the Lord of a heavenly army is holy. And he's not just holy, right? He's not merely emphatically holy, holy. But he's the super superlative, by the way. The only time in the entire scripture a word is used three times in a row. Holy, holy, holy. This means that God is not just the big, the powerful, the important Lord or King. He is holy, separate, utterly removed, the actual other. He is possessing a fearful and wonderful moral excellency. Absolute purity, metaphysical perfection. And the most outrageous claim of the entire scripture here and everywhere else is this how we imagine this God changes the way that we live 
from the inside out. How we imagine that God changes the way that we actually live. Like how Luis Banks, in Arrival, studies these alien heptapods, that's really hard to say, and their words to her, and she suddenly understands space and time and relationships differently. What would it actually look like for us to interrupt that low ceiling anxiety loop that we all have? What if we all of a sudden sort of inserted a vision of a high and lifted up, utterly holy God who speaks to us? Perhaps a prayer would no longer feel like the last second desperation half-court shot. Maybe a prayer would not just be the precious bow we tie around a a present of our hard work and good professor references. What would it look like to stop midway up the hill from Nummit, step off of the brick sidewalk everywhere, and reimagine God? God, high and above, and at the same time, all over, whether you get that internship. Elbow deep in that fragile friendship that you're stressed about. Look, yes, I get it. There's no Brexit in sight. And the U.S. government pouts like school children at recess. I get it. Okay, But what if God is holy, holy, holy? a foundation-rattling powerhouse of a cosmic being. All of a sudden, Sunday mornings, Tuesday nights with RUF would change it for us, right? I love the way that Annie Dillard says it in a quote. Why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews. The sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. What Dillard is suggesting is that maybe religious professionals like me have gotten so worked up about making God safe and digestible that we have lost a vision for just how mysteriously powerful God is in our lives. And this kind of discomfort is moving towards what Isaiah experiences in verses 5 through 7, point 2 on your outline. You see, when we recognize God for who he truly is, high, lifted up, holy, we can start to immediately feel inadequate and guilty. God's white-hot truthfulness exposes us in all of our disguises. And in the words of A.W. Tozier, this can feel emotionally violent. Just look with me at verse 5 of the passage and how Isaiah describes this emotional experience for him. Woe is me! I am lost. Better translation, I'm undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts. This isn't a scene of spiritual rapture or ecstasy. Isaiah is like, just feels utterly ruined. In the presence of God, Isaiah sees all at once the many ways he has complained, the ways he's boasted, ways he's got defensive, he's accused, he's criticized, he's blame shifted, he's slandered, he's denounced, he's gossiped. 
And instead of comparing himself to others and finding self-satisfaction, right? Or instead of comparing himself with others and finding subtle techniques for self-improvement, Isaiah compares himself to a holy God and he loses all hope in any hard work he can do. As they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, when you're the problem, you can't be the solution. When you're the problem, you can't be the solution. But God's holiness is an all-consuming fire, surrounded by winged, burning ones. And that isn't meant as like mere discouragement. It's actually meant to cleanse and restore and free us for our encouragement. Notice in verses 6 through 7, God doesn't leave us undone. God honors our confession, honors Isaiah's confession of, of faith. And the seraphim take a burning coal from God's very holy presence. And one of the seraphim, a seraph, touches Isaiah's lips. The very place where he feels most guilty and most ashamed. How awesome is that that God draws near to that place? And Isaiah is told, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The word that's in the Hebrew that's translated atoned for literally means cover a debt. God, not Isaiah, initiates the gesture. He initiates the promise, and they only find their fulfillment. The gesture and the promise only find their fulfillment over 800 years later in God becoming man, Jesus of Nazareth. And all of a sudden, this God-man, Jesus, dies on a wooden altar of a cross that acts as a life-on-life payment plan in the holy eyes of God. Peter tells us that Jesus' blood, Peter, an apostle in the New Testament, a writer of the New Testament, tells us that Jesus' blood is more precious than gold and silver. And it is shed to free us. It covers the debt. It satisfies the cost to buy our freedom. It buys our freedom from guilt. It buys our freedom from inadequacy. It buys our freedom from uncleanliness. To quote Frederick Buechner's paraphrase of verse 7, there, It'll be all right now. That's what the angels are saying. Seraphim are saying. So look, verses 5 through 7, again, speaks to the importance of reimagining God properly. The natural temptation when important people fail you, right? Isaiah has King Uzziah. He dies. Failure. It's tempting to transfer your allegiance from that person to ourselves. Do you see how this works? Look, you know, Isaiah thinks, I'm alive. Big advantage. <laughs> I can do a little bit more than you can, as I now. But Isaiah sees how comically unable he is in the presence of God to do anything. And we are unable to be limitless like God. We are unable to be perfect like God. Look, yes, I get it. Important people in our lives, parents, mentors, professors, coaches, right? All these people, friends even, have failed and are failing us as we speak. But I want you to know a really important truth. It's not all up to us now. That's the, that's the central issue of Christianity. It's not up to us now. Okay? You and I will mentally burn out. You and I will mentally spiral and fall apart if we try to secure our own prosperity, if we try to secure our own security, if we try to secure our own worth. Because we simply can't be perfect enough. We simply can't be limitless enough. I really appreciate the way that Jen Wilkin puts the issue in her book, None Like Him. Look, our primary problem as Christians 
is not that we lack self-worth. It's not that we lack a sense of significance. It's that we lack awe. We don't embrace our limits in light of a limitless God. Getting heartburn from that. But how do we how do we do this? Right? How do we do this? Like that's awesome, Sid. You just got really fired up about stuff, smoke machines and everything else. How do we do this? Okay. Thankfully, a person I admire, a poet named Gerard Manley Hopkins, comes to the rescue and shows us the way. I'm almost obsessed about this guy, so I'll try to keep this relatively brief. But but Hopkins is this like prodigy at, at Oxford, graduates high honors, highest in his class. Uh, but then he becomes Catholic at this moment where it's extremely unpopular to become Catholic in England. And then he joins an isolated, poor, and austere Catholic seminary to become a priest. And while into his time at the seminary, a good dear friend from his Oxford days writes him a letter, totally betrays the friendship, and makes Hopkins view himself as a complete and utter failure. And there's this, in this letter... Uh, Hopkins reads it and it causes him to doubt his faith in his whole professional trajectory. It was such a time of, this is a quote from Ron Hansen, the biographer. It was a time of such fruitless trial and stress that in one night prayer, he'd asked, dear Lord, dear God, do you want us to fail? He's not in a good spot. Okay, so one day in a retreat, he's led to meditate on his shortcomings, right? He takes a look at his shortcomings in light of God's attributes. And according to biographer Ron Hansen, that changes everything. And you can read the quote behind me. But basically, all of a sudden, he cries out in wonder that he's tolerated, sustained, cared for, in spite of continuing insults and offenses. He feels this tranquil, soothing God of intimacy and tolerance and unquenchable love who knew every jot and tittle about him, but chose to focus on what was good, even childhood kindnesses that he'd forgotten. And then notice what Hopkins does with this. What does he do with this information? What does he do with this encounter? When faced with God's holiness and unquenchable love, Hopkins surrenders. How counterintuitive is that? (laughs) He just surrenders. He looks to God for his future, security, prosperity, and worth. How do you surrender? Here again the words of Ron Hansen. And, the Hop- and Hopkins said yes to whatever Christ would ask of him. And grace as soft as a dove's wing floated over him, calming him. And he felt steadied, poised, and pained as water in a well. And I, I love the way that actually Hopkins put puts this in his poem. There's a prologue to his poem, The Wreck of the Deutschland, lesser known poem of Hopkins. It directly addresses this moment of awe and the feelings of failure and God's simultaneous lightning and love. Here Gerard Manley Hopkins' own words, okay? Let them pour over you. I'm going to read it relatively fast because it's up on the screen behind me, okay? This is just gorgeous, by the way. I'm like really tempted just to go the whole thing. (laughs) Thou mastering me, God, giver of breath and bread, Thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh, and after it almost unmade what with dread thy doing, and dost thou touch me afresh, over again I feel thy finger, and I find thee. Hopkins continues, I did say yes, O at lightning and lashed rod, thou hurtst me, truer than tongue confess, thy terror, O Christ, O God, my heart, but you were dove-winged, I can tell, Carrier-witted I am, bold to boast, to flash from the flame to flame, then tower from grace to grace. And finally, thou art lightning and love. I found it, 
a winter and a warm. Father and fondler of heart thou hast wrung. Hast thy dark descending and most art merciful then. Make mercy in all of us and as all. Mastery, but be adored. But be adored, King. I mean, anyway. So much good stuff. And that's sort of what it feels like and what it looks like to surrender. And I know that, look, it's not going to look and feel like the same for all of us. Um, this doesn't mean that you should go take up poetry, necessarily. Maybe That'd be actually really repentance for some of us here, a change of heart for some of us here. But also, it doesn't mean that you have to become a Catholic priest. But according to verse 8, God disrupts us to select us, to move us from boredom to mission. This is our third and final point, and it's relatively brief. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go to go for us? And then Isaiah says, I said, here I am, send me. Lips still charred from kissing God's holiness. Isaiah volunteers to be God's prophet, his spokesman, his mouthpiece to 8th century Judah and to 21st century Davidson. Like how Hopkins can't help but sharing his deep experience of God and his poetry, or how the character of Craig Schwartz and being John Malkovich can't help but tell the secret of the doorway that leads to the passage where he gets to inhabit the, the brain of John Malkovich. Really, Isaiah can't help himself here. He has to share it. And if you've experienced God, whether in an almost alien vision or more likely similar to Hopkins in terms of just experiencing him through the, the Bible or through reading scripture or prayer or communion, there's something inside us all that wants to hear and to speak more about it. It, that experience we have, the skylight in the eminent ceiling, that roar which is on the other side of silence. And it's getting caught up in and even sacrificing for something bigger than ourselves. It's living for more than our own comfort that makes us less bored and boring. Do you get that? Sometimes we're bored and boring because all we do is live for ourselves. But what does it look like to be sent by God and still feel caught up in holiness? It's so easy to go through the motions, isn't it? It's so easy to think I'm on a mission and then get complacent. I'm going to end by giving you hopefully an encouraging illustration uh, from an extreme joy and pain of my life. My children. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and here's the best part. Doing reading homework with my children. You don't have this joy yet. So from a distance, it seems very sentimental. My eight-year-old's twins and my six-year-old get in my lap and they learn to read. And let me be clear, it is agony. It's, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Maybe some of you at Ada Jenkins. Okay? Letting them sound out words syllable by syllable that you know. Right? <laughs> Sitting silently as they pause over a word that you just want to blurt out. They skip entire words or lines and you have to sit there and point and kind of catch them back up. Sometimes they just sort of awkwardly pause the whole time and then shut down. I can't tell you how like pointless and ineffective this whole thing feels, okay? Like imagine, you're just sitting there. I know I could just like read the sentences. I could read the words. I could read the paragraphs and chapters even about jaguars or dolphins or Danny the dinosaur. And I could do it so fast and so well. No stutters, no skips, no pauses. In fact, I get so bored sometimes with my children, this is a confession, 
I fall asleep sitting up while they read to me. I'm sorry, I'm a terrible dad. And sometimes I read over their shoulder just to kind of figure out what's going to happen next because I'm so bored waiting for them to finish the sentence. My children learning to read feels so slow, right? It feels so inefficient, so long, and that Davison part of me inside of me just like freaks out. <laughs> okay? So one night after a particularly long homework stretch, I think I'd read with two or three of the children in a row, which is like almost an hour, I had something of a little vision, a little B vision, okay? I saw that, like, that me sitting with them being read to is like me being sent by God to do his ministry and his mission. Okay. I often wonder if, you're, if you've done any sort of ministry, if you've done any sort of work in the church, or maybe even RUF, you sometimes wonder, is this really your plan, eh, God? <laughs> is, why don't you just snap your fingers and make it happen? Why don't you make someone feel heard or loved? Why don't you download the sermons? Why don't you sit there and labor over it for so many hours and read all these different commentaries and speak it and feel like it wasn't that great? And then I realized that night, it's the same reason that I don't just read my children's books for them. It's for our good. God wants us to learn how to actually do the thing ourselves. So we can teach our children how to read, or in this case, how to know God's holiness. You see, if God is choosing the slow, sounding it out, skipping lines and words way of doing it, if he's, if he's choosing these human messengers, if he chooses human beings like me who are far less than children compared to him, this tells us something. It tells us the point maybe of the Christian life is not just to nail it. (laughs) The point isn't just to read all the words perfectly or to read it all so fast. Maybe God expects us to mess up. Maybe God expects us to feel frustrated and to get excited. Maybe the greater point is to sit on God's lap and to learn and to lean back in his arms and to learn his ways. This is so hard. You know why this is so hard? It's the same reason it's hard for my children to read. Because there are second graders at recess that don't speak the truth. They exaggerate about how much they've read and how fast they read. Right? So my, qu- my twin second graders came home one day and they said, there's some kid, I can't remember his name thankfully, who was on the playground and he said he read the first six books of Harry Potter by himself. The kid is seven. <laughs> Look, I just want you to know the truth. That person, me, I'm not killing the Christian game the way you think I am. Neither is that person. Okay? Just like that person really didn't read seven books of Harry Potter by the age of seven. Okay? And look, what's magical, what's almost supernatural about watching someone learn to read is that we don't actually know when it happens. When do they actually learn to read? When are you going to mark that point? They're stuttering, they're skipping, they're sounding it out, their long pauses still happen. And it's still reading. Just like your rushed mornings and my skipped meetings and our interpersonal L's are actually ministry. Simply put, ministry and mission are always leaning back into the lap. They're always learning to read in the arms of God, the Holy One who calms, the Holy One who frees, the Holy One who sends. Let's reimagine this life for a second. This is going to be real countercultural. 
And I'm sorry if it's offensive. It's not about what I do or how well I do it. It's about who I do it with and whose presence I do it in. And that changes everything. And all of a sudden, you're doing it well. And all of a sudden, you're doing it with enjoyment. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about something that is really hard and counterintuitive to talk about. Um, We're in the seven half floor and it's hard to stand up straight. Um, And I pray that you would help us, teach me. Um, I need to learn how to stand up straight. And I pray that these students, they would get a vision of who you are, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.